0: Very soon we realized that pathology slides contain huge amounts of biological and spatial data that are overlooked today. So rather than you know trying to simulate the pathologist and look for what pathologists look for, we thought it would be much more interesting to look at
1: what the pathologists don't see. Welcome to the People of Pathology Podcast. I'm Dennis Strenck. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. There is a wealth of data on pathology slides, even down to the subcellular and molecular levels. My guest today is Dr. Ori Zelikoff. Dr. Zelikoff is the VP of Clinical Development at Nuclei, which is using AI and spatial biology to analyze pathology slides. We'll talk about Dr. Zelikoff's career path so far, some of his early work in cancer biomarkers, and we'll talk all about nuclei and what they're trying to achieve. All right, here's Dr. Ori Zelikoff. The place I want to start is kind of coming out of your military service, because I know in the military, that's where you were working with uh, computers and kind of getting into image analysis. So coming out of there, you went to medical school. So I'm I'm curious what was kind of what how did the uh, was sort of the decision process to that resulted in you going to medical school?
0: Yeah, right. So as you mentioned, when when I was 18, I had the privilege to join the the Israel Intelligence Forces and to serve for four years at the elite uh, 8200 unit, which is uh, kind of the uh, equivalent to the Israeli NSA. Now uh, this unit is is very famous for being kind of an incubator for some of the leading uh, tech entrepreneurs in Israel, especially in the cybersecurity domain, actually. Now, I think that what makes this place uh, so unique is, is the creator of the unit that everything is possible and no problem is, is too big. So although most of my colleagues went on to study computer science and engineering, uh, our founders actually uh, served for 20 years and a similar, you need to doing computer vision. I try to think out of military service. What would be, uh, what are the greatest challenges that face humanity, and where could I apply what I learned in in the service uh, that could solve, you know, big problems? And and for me, it was clear that medicine is where the potential impact of technology and innovation and in human life is the greatest. So I decided to go to medical school. And I think this transition was not very difficult, but it was uh, pretty frustrating because uh, compared to the groundbreaking technologies I, I used in, in the army, you know, to, to arrest terrorists, the technology in medicine and, and the environment of the hospitals uh, felt much less advanced and, and efficient. So I think this is where I kind of was frustrated. And during medical school, uh decided that I would you know prefer in, to combine you know innovation technology with medicine and and really to
1: solve big problems during uh, medical school and then kind of you know afterwards what what sort of specialties were you interested in at at, at that time
0: uh, so i think uh, there were many but oncology was always the, the one that interested me the most and where i focused my my research uh, first, because it's uh, probably, in my opinion, the biggest challenge of, of medicine in the 21st century and the burden of this disease and the death rate of, of cancer is, the real, is really extreme. Mm-hmm. And, and I also see this, you know, as probably the most fascinating disease to study in terms of the biology, the complexity of the disease and how it's almost part of, of who we are and of the, the evolution. It's kind of, you know, we tend to see cancer as something bad, which is Definitely something bad, but the ability of you know cells to divide, to proliferate, the ability of DNA to change, uh, to mutate, is what allowed the evolution and the development of, of of human beings. So I think this is a very complex and very interesting study, oncology. And at the same time, uh, my dad passed away from cancer uh, when he was actually pretty young, uh, only fifty-four. So I also had some personal motivation to work on cancer, and over the last uh, seven years out of medical school, I still uh, focus my my career on trying to better understand this disease and find novel drugs to 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 fight
1: cancer. Mm -hmm. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense to me. Oncology is kind of a there's a lot of fields that kind of cross over into it, you know, as far as radiology, surgery, and certainly pathology as well. Was pathology kind of separately, was that ever of interest to you, or was it just as a part of oncology?
0: So pathology was not specifically of interest
1: to me. I actually focused most of my
0: early research on more molecular kind of analysis, either as, you know, I, I served as a researcher at the National Institute for Biotechnology, where We've tried to find novel biomarkers based on different gene expression patterns. And pathology, to be honest, before joining nuclei, sounds to me is a kind of primitive technology. Today, I understand that the spatial context and the ability to analyze tumor, not just from the molecular uh, standpoint, but also from spatial standpoint, is, is really important and can, you know, unlock a lot of the information that today is underutilized and that could really make an impact
1: on how drugs are are developed. It's interesting. I think we, we're gonna gonna go through yeah, sure. that 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 uh, that story how, how you got there. So, how long were you working kind of in clinical medicine before you uh, transferred kind of full time into industry cancer research?
0: So, actually, I did uh, one uh, year of internship in Tel Aviv Medical Center. But afterwards, rather than going to do any specialty, I decided to move to to the industry. And I think that, you know, during medical school, I realized that I want to impact healthcare on a large scale. And instead of treating one patient at a time, to do things that can potentially save uh, thousands of patients. And now, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, the right place to innovate in medicine was in hospitals, universities. Government. But this has changed dramatically, thanks, I think, to the conversions of biology and software and the democratization of biotech through you know gene sequencing, gene engineering, and AI. Today the greatest revolutions of medicine actually come from the industry. I think one of the best examples is is the COVID vaccine, right? So the COVID vaccines were developed in uh, by two startups, the Moderna and BioNTech. And not by research organizations. So chemotherapies or polio vaccines were developed, uh, by nations or bar- by publicly supported organizations like universities. But I think that the power now, uh, to really revolutionize biology and medicine from the industry is becoming really apparent. And I felt that moving to the industry would be the right place to both combine my, you know, technical and medical experience, and in a first
1: pace to build new technologies that could uh, impact patients. Okay, I like that. You're trying to you're trying to have the greatest effect for the greatest number of people. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, all right. Okay. Let, let's talk about a couple of the companies you were involved with before you uh, got to Nuclei. So you were the a co-founder of a company called Boomerang. Right. Now this this focused on. CRISPR technology applied to personalized cancer drugs uh so all right so let's talk about that one first how did how did that one get started so actually this was a a startup from a
0: research idea at the Bangor university where i studied medicine CRISPR just you know started about i think it was 2013 maybe 15 and and we kind of tried to figure out we had a a group of uh, researchers trying to figure out can we build a more a precise drugs? Because obviously one of the greatest limitations of current drugs is specificity. The problem with cancer is that it's, it's a heterogeneous disease that stems from several mutations, multiple protein changes that a single drug mostly would not be able to block. And CRISPR, one of the great thing about CRISPR is that it's kind of a very modular system that allows you to engineer biology as if it was a software. And we're able to come up with a very elegant approach of building a logic gates, just like in computers, that would activate drugs only in the presence of several conditions, multiple conditions. So instead of activating a drug uh, based on one target, like chemo, you know, that's killing every cell that is dividing quickly or targeted therapies would block a certain protein, our system was designed in a way that would kill cells only in the presence of multiple markers to make it highly specific. So we've done uh, some research and we've uh, had some very interesting uh, proof of concept in, in the lab and in my studies, and also we were able to build some concept around how this drug might be further developed. And we won some international competitions in, in Boston, in, in China. And uh, there was a lot of buzz around what we did, but eventually, uh, we found out that the technology was not mature enough to go from, you know, lab into the clinic. Mostly because of limited efficacy in delivering uh, those complex machines, uh, gene editing machines. And we're now seven not years after uh, my experience with Boomerang, we just now start to see the applications of CRISPR moving into the clinic. So I think we're kind of ahead of our time. The scientific work was very groundbreaking, but in terms of moving the technology into the clinic, uh, we were
1: we were not mature enough. I imagine probably the cost of of delivering that kind of treatment was probably pretty high at the time as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And then from there, now you you go to uh, Novellis, which also worked on targeted therapies. Uh, can okay. Can you tell me a little bit about Novellis, which I think this it's now called Four now. I right. Yeah. Right. So it's a, it's a very interesting uh,
0: company. I, I really like and, and um uh, I joined um, a- after my experience with Boomerang, and after completing medical school, I joined there as a medical director, leading the the clinical development and scientific work in the company. Uh, at the time I joined, it was uh, pretty well established, uh, funded by you know leading uh, VCs like Ormid Pontifax. And what Novels developed was uh, a platform to measure. The functional activity of different genes. So today, when you do gene sequencing for tumors, which is also you know becoming almost a standard, many of the genes today are what is considered uh, variants of uncertain significance. So actually, about seventy or eighty percent of mutations uh, that are detected by NGS are are unknown unknown significance. So we've built a um, cell-based assay that could take this uh, report and uh, stimulate the, the patient's tumor understand how different pathways a signal uh, within the cell and also incubate them with different drugs to better understand uh, the potential response of each patient to a certain target therapy. The technology again was very interesting and the promise of you know making Precision medicine, more precise, also very promising. But eventually, we realized that the best way to move forward is not by serving pharma companies in doing a better patient certification, but actually doing a better patient certification for our own asset. So if you own your asset, an IP on an asset, and then you use the platform first uh, to license drugs. That you suspect would be the most effective uh, in a certain patient population. And then you already have a kind of a biomarker in hand based on the assay. So it's, it's a difficult transition from, you know, being precision medicine company to being a biotech developing drug, but also the, uh, the upside is, is much higher. So I was involved actually in the pivot of the company from Novellus to Four. Which led to the licensing of a very interesting compound, a BRF inhibitor that I, I believe would be very, very successful, I hope, in, a, in a clinical trials and would really change the paradigm of how today targeted therapies deliver. The and the approach now is really to take drugs uh, for an ultra specific uh, population that might, you know, reduce your market size, but increase dramatically uh, the response rates for certain patients that have a very dominant pathway
1: that can be targeted by, by small molecules. So going through these experiences at these two companies, I mean you're working with personalized or precision medicine. Could you like foresee what was coming as far as precision medicine? How Because, because that's what everybody's talking about these days. Was that something you learned from from these experiences?
0: Yeah, so uh, so absolutely, I think I I these were early experiencing experiences in my career. So I learned a lot about you know uh, the potential of a personalized medicine, uh, but at the same time some of the uh, the challenges. And I think that the, actually my main lessons were about the gap between good science and a viable business model, and the mm-hmm. need to better you know how to better transform. Biological discoveries into products that some will actually pay for. So both in Boomerang and initially in Novels, there was very good sciences, very good discoveries, very interesting technologies. But eventually we had to do some changes to, you know, to deliver and to bring value from those technologies. So I think that if you have an interesting technology uh, that could change healthcare or could solve key problems in drug development. It takes a while to understand how to find a killer app for these technologies that will work not only in the lab but also in human and that will be attractive for pharma in terms of you know IP, competition, commercial strategy, etc. And I learned a lot about this. So precision medicine in general is great and computational biology in general is great but one of the challenges is not only to have good technology and to find a good problem but also to see how they fit and how what is the best
1: applications to start with that really you know be attractive in the market okay yeah that makes sense so now you're vp of clinical development at nuclei so how is it that you that you came to nuclei
0: I joined Nuclei two and a half years ago, a pretty early stage of the company, in a, in a very exciting time when the founding, cam, founding team still trying to figure out how you know, how to apply the, the computer vision technology and their um, you know, experience with, with digital pathology. And it was a very exciting opportunity for me personally to bring my own experience and help in shaping uh, the companies and, and product strategy. So originally, the focus of nuclei was around a very kind of simple image analysis technology that is aiming to simply automate the pathologist's work to improve you know, accuracy and efficacy of diagnosis. But very soon we realized that pathology slides contain huge amounts of biological and spatial data that are overlooked today. So rather than you know, trying to simulate the pathologist and look for what pathologists look for, we thought it would be much more interesting to look at what the pathologists don't see at the start. So if you can unlock spatial biology data from pathologists fly and extract millions of data points from biopsies rather than just a binary information of cancer versus normal, you can find those subtle patterns that cannot be identified by the human eye, that can be used not for diagnosis, but to understand drug mechanism of action. So now our platform can be used not to serve pathologists in diagnosing patients, but also pharma companies and oncologists in developing drugs, uh, stratifying patients for trial, identifying novel predictive uh, prognostic biomarkers and uh, you know tumor microenvironment or immune signatures
1: that are associated with with a certain phenotype of, of interest kind of goes back to what you said earlier about at the time pathology being sort of a a bit primitive, but now you're trying to bring a a bigger or a more complex technology to it to to make it k- kind of bring it into the 21st century, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would just add that it's 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 not only about the spatial biology; it's
0: also about how deep can you go, you know, from the phenotype from from the pathology downstream into molecular data, because we're now in a very exciting time, kind of similar to what was in you know, genomics 20 years ago, where we have this high technologies that allow you not only to look at eg slides or simple IHC, but also to look on um, dozens or hundreds of different proteins at the same time uh, on, the, on one slide, but to preserve the spatial context of them. That would really bring you not only the spatial information, but also the molecular information and the interaction between your know, genes, proteins, and space. And that would really, uh, you know, drive, I think,
1: new class of you know, drugs and, and biomarkers. Now, now you're talking. You mentioned that this the spatial aspect. Like, so you're looking at H and E slides and IHC slides. Is it some immunofluorescence as well? Right.
0: Yes, okay. so we work all over. So it
1: would be agene, IHC,
0: um, multiplex assay, either chromogenic or IF, and even more complex technologies that would be like IMC and and, and different you know different technologies. So our our platform is kind of pretty agnostic, uh, both
1: in terms of you know labs, stainings, and and cancer types. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Ori Zelikoff. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Ori Zelikoff on the People of Pathology podcast. Now, before we go on, we've mentioned spatial biology a couple of times. Can we kind of, and I know this is, there's so many, there's a lot of research, there's so many papers being written about spatial biology and its its kind of applications. Can we kind of define what that means, especially like in terms of what nuclei is doing?
0: Yeah. So when we say spatial biology, we talk about two dimensional space, where again, today when you do omics, the traditional omics, you take a bulk tissue, You destroy it and you measure, you know, DNA or RNA or proteins or whatever. But then you lose the the two dimensional context and the interaction between cells and proteins at the tissue. So when we say spatial biology, we talk about, you know, the interaction at the two dimensional level between cells and proteins, different areas. And this information can be extracted today from millions of glass slides. That are buried in, you know, labs. It's the most abundant kind of uh, biological data out there. It's just that again, manually, you cannot extract a lot of data out of this slide. So we see, you know, pathology is a source to measure biology at the spatial level in a way that from a single slide, you will be able to get a table of millions of data points that would Know, quantify different cell types in the tissue, uh, provide coordinates for each uh, and every cell, and then run very complex calculations on top of that that would tell you what are the you know, densities and proximities of different cell populations and where exactly in the tumor those cells are are located either you know in the stromal area versus tumor versus necrotic area, et cetera, and building those maps. That could then allow you to better understand what's going on in, in the tissue, and I think that the magic starts where you combine this data with the phenotype data, say clinical outcome data. Now it's a classical question of you know deep learning. So let's say that you show uh, the deep learning model thousands of slides of patients that were treated with a certain drug, say in oncology, and were super sensitive to the drug. Versus thousands of slides of patients that were treated, but were resistant to the treatment. You can now find patterns, visual patterns, spatial patterns that can distinguish between these two patient populations. And in some cases, you won't find anything, but in many cases, and especially in immuno-oncology, we understand that the spatial context is crucial because a lot of studies tried, you know, to compare DNA or RNA data between responders or non-responders to checkpoint inhibitors and found nothing significant. And it makes sense because the way immunotherapies work is not by targeting tumor directly, but by unleashing the immune system to attack the tumor. So if you want to understand whether a patient is uh, going to respond or not to immune oncology, you need not only to analyze the tumor, but also the immune system and the tumor microenvironment and the interaction between those systems. And this is what we try to do and really to bring this, you know, uh, information
1: to uh, pharma companies uh, when developing those drugs. There's something that you mentioned that I want to talk about a little bit. You said about uh, combining the clinical data with the data from the pathology slides and this is something that i think makes nuclei a little bit unique because you're combining the clinical and the demographic data and which i would think would make it easier to develop you know companion diagnostics and and new drugs and things like that can, can you talk about what type of clinical and uh demographic data you're using
0: yeah sure so i, I think one of our advantages here in israel is really the unique access we have to do to, to to data. So Israel is, is very centralized in terms of the healthcare system. And in nuclear, we have partnerships with some of the leading medical centers here, uh, like Shiba and Clalit and, and others. And that allows us to get an access to millions of images of pathology size and the tissue itself and clinical outcome or clinical data in general from EMR. So the data In Israel is very longitudinal. And when we have, when we work with those, um, you know, HMOs, we really access everything. It really depends on on the partner, but in general, you can look at drug information, clinical output information, either, you know, PFS, OS, different confounders like smoking and ECAD and, and age and even genomic data. So basically everything that is in the EMR. Either lab tests, archeology data, outcome data is, is available for us. And this is where, as you mentioned, you can start to find very interesting things. And even if you work with pharma companies, you can, instead of using only their drug, only their drug data of, you know, 100, 200 patients for the phase one, phase two trial, you already have pre-trained models that were trained on thousands of different patients from real world evidence. And this is a very unique advantage that we have. And this is what allowed us to really develop very accurate algorithms to structure pathology data across cancer, and also to find, you know, already biomarkers of response to immunoncology drugs uh, in different indication that can now be transferred to, um, you know, new
1: drugs. That are being tested today on on the clinic. Nuclei has a, a blog which it looks like you 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 write all the posts for that, and in one of them you wrote that sp- spatial biology and its significance will change the way we understand, investigate, and treat cancer in the near future. W- what do you think some of those changes are going to be like? What were you what were you talking about in in this uh, particular blog post? It's
0: again, it's kind of the, uh, the dimension that was not available for us before. So think of, you know, genomics starting to, uh, to rise. Um, Before looking at DNA, the way you investigated diseases was at the macroscopic level. So you looked at how uh, a disease tissue looked like and how normal tissue looked like. Uh, Think of cancer, right? So you had the histology, you had the pathology and, that's the level of, of analysis you had and then when starting to build those uh, genome atlases you really started to found that what starts cancer is is you know mutated genes and i see the opportunity of spatial biology just like that again you test and study Diseases today at the molecular level. So you run, you know, DNA analysis or RNA analysis, the protein analysis, but you miss the context of the interaction between all of those um, molecules. Now, humans are spatial by nature, right? And if you don't look at how cells interact with each other, how proteins interact with each other, you just miss a lot of information. So I think that once you have access to data on one hand, on the other hand, better sensors like the HyPlex um, technologies to visualize proteins at the spatial level, and then AI to unlock the data from slides, you would be able to start look at the biology from a different level and the discoveries. Uh, spatial biology, I think, would have a lot of impact. Uh, First, again, as I mentioned, on understanding drug mechanism of action and, you know, what interactions make one patient sensitive and the other patient resistant to a certain drug, but also even deeper kind of understanding of how diseases progress and start and that would allow you not only to develop I think biomarkers and diagnostics, but also
1: to actually develop new drugs using spatial biology data. Okay, I think kind of the the key word that you mentioned there was context, and when we're talking about the spatial data, I mean you're looking at not only what cells are present and maybe kind of the size and shape and things like that, but also their relationship to each other, so the distance from the other cells and location whether they're in the tumor or in the tumor microenvironment and and things like that is that is that the kind of spatial data we're talking about
0: yeah absolutely so that that's exactly what we what we talk about and in addition there is this you know even at the at the cell level those septal patterns of cell morphology that also are not being studied today so the way the the shape of the nucleus the roundness of the cytoplasm all of those subtle changes that again today are not being studied, are also part of what we call spatial biology. So spatial biology is the two-dimensional context, but also the, the morphology of the cells that interact in the tumor. And we now understand that by analyzing large data sets of tissues and using deep learning to find this sample patterns of cell morphologies, you cannot only find Spatial patterns for response, but you can also find out whether a certain tumor carries a certain mutation. So, for example, we know that patient with KRAS mutant versus KRAS wild type would have different morphologies at the cell level or at the tissue level. So, this is also something that we do that could, you know, support companies and patients in, in enrolling the right patient to the right treatment. And maybe screening for different rare mutations that today are not being tested by NGS, we could do that with our with our technology. So, for example, we did some internal work uh, predicting MSI status out of h simple h images. So, MSI is uh, is already an approved CDx for Keytruda pan cancer, but the situation is that not hundred percent of patients are being tested for MSI with genomic screening, and that kind of prevent many patients with, you know, pancreas cancer, or ovary cancer, so it might benefit from I.O. because they have this very unique MSI high status uh, to receive the drug. But if you can kind of deploy AI algorithms that would go through every agent slide and kind of flag Every slide that might have an actual mutation or an actual protein within it, that would be, I think, very beneficial for, for patients and for companies developing these drugs.
1: I was reading something just, just actually just earlier today about stain normalization. So, you know, every H&E stain is not the same as far as intensity of the, of the staining of the colors. How, how do you correct for that? I mean, without kind of getting too technical here, how do you correct for like differences in staining? Yeah, so I
0: think it's it's going back to our um,
1: unique access. So when we build a company,
0: starting to build those models, we knew that you know a single site would not be good enough to uh, produce a robust models and a generalizable models. So the the access that we have, both in Israel, but also in you know US sites, allowed us to collect data from you know different labs, uh, different stainings, different Types of tumors and to develop kind of a color augmentation technology that would you know do this adjustment and would allow us to overcome this this heterogeneity of you know labs and, and staining. So again, I'm not a I'm not an AI person in the company, uh, and again, not going too deep into the technology. But when you have a deep learning and you have a lot of samples from different sites. You can really make those models robust and then you're kind of agnostic to, uh, where the tissue is coming from. Uh, what was the, the specific conditions and uh, where the, the, the tissue was stained. And also you'd be agnostic for it. For example, for different clones that were used to stain, I don't know, fiddle one or hair
1: whatever, whatever it is out there. And I know we've talked it, it, a lot of, th- the uh, samples you're talking about are like biopsy samples, but what about like larger, like like tumor resection specimens? I mean, how important would tissue sampling be because you need to get not only tumor cells in there, but also kind of the surrounding, I mean, we mentioned the tumor microenvironment and kind of the surrounding stromal right. cells. So so it, it, I I feel like tissue sampling would become even more important.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's right. The, the, the thing is that we don't want to, change drastically the way uh, that biopsies are being taken today, and we don't want to be sensitive to that. The question, you know, what was the size and where the biopsy was taken from because we need to eventually integrate our technology into, you know, clinical trials or clinical So It really depends. If, you know, for metastatic patients, sometimes you won't have those big Uh, but uh, smaller uh, images. And I think mostly we will be able, if the spatial context again is preserved and you have some tumor, some immune system, we can able to extract um, valuable information out of it. But I think the most important thing is to really let the data talk, right? So when we did different studies to see whether... You know, those biopsies, they're not very large, but this is what you have today. For example, in non-small lung cancer for stage four disease, we simply did a work to see, can we extract enough data from those pretty small slides to predict response to immunotherapy? And what we presented in ASCO last year was a very interesting study on 92 patients, again, lung lung cancer patients. That we were all treated first line singulation with Kitruda. And we were able to identify the spatial signature related to the interaction between TILS and tumor cells that was quite significant in distinguishing between patients that were super sensitive to the drug and patients that were resistant to the drug. And again, we try not, you know, to be very picky in, in, in sampling. And to use whatever, uh, the, the pathologist or the oncologist, uh, has. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if it's, you know, just cell smears or really small sample samples that one not have, won't have the spatial context, we won't be able to use it. But we need to make sure that out of whatever you have today, we bring just more value
1: over what the pathologist could bring. Now, I know, you, you know, Nuclei t- focuses on immuno-oncology, companion diagnostics, but I feel like there could be other applications to this technology, things like infectious disease and autoimmune diseases. Um, is that something that you think you might branch out into?
0: Yeah, so it, the, 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 the focus on oncology is, is really, I think, uh, first, because this is where we see the, the potential of spatial biology, to mostly you know, affect patients also, but this is where we see the demand from pharma companies, but absolutely, I think that our platform can support different uh, non-oncology indications like Nash and IBD. We did some work actually in, in Nash. Um, at this point, we, we really want to focus our business. And this is where we, why we, you know, most of the work we're doing is, is around oncology, but the platform as I say, is pretty agnostic to, to the type of disease. And I do think that there are many interesting applications
1: in autoimmune disease, um, infectious disease, and, and more. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I can definitely see potential in, in those areas in the future. All right. What, so one more quote from the nuclei blog, uh, you wrote, we aim to generate the first ever comprehensive spatial biology atlas and, and lead the spatial revolution in biology. Yeah. So, so I'm curious, this spatial biology atlas, wh- what would be kind of the application for this? Like what, what's kind of the goal of of creating this yeah
0: so again i think it's going back to to what i said about the you know the revolution of genomics and to some sense we're starting to build this spatial biology atlas because again we have the the ai to extract data from biopsies we have the actual tissue and biopsies to analyze and now we start to work with you know with different sensors advanced sensors that will allow us to extract more and more data to build atlases that are not only genomic, but also spatial. Different, way, different ways to, uh, you know, there are different ways to, to use such such a, an atlas in, in drug R&D. So we, we've mentioned some, you know, either predictive biomarkers, prognostic biomarkers, uh, genomic screeners. Once you have the, the phenotype data, the clinical outcome data, and you have this very comprehensive atlas of molecular and spatial data, you can find those patterns that would uh, you know, distinguish between responders, non-responders, patient with uh, mutation X versus Y, etc. But I think one of the even more exciting applications of this atlas would be if I know how. The tissue of a non responder patient looks like, and I know how a tissue of a responder looks like. Can I find ways to reprogram the tumor from state X to, t- to state Y? So, this is where we think technologies like highplex analyses, AI, spatial biology could not only again find biomarkers but also find actually new targets and new strategies. To develop drugs that would affect cells and proteins in space, and will reprogram the tumor from state resistant state to a sensitive state, and will drive the development of a new class of drugs that you know engineer or reprogram the tumor microenvironment and the tumor immune interaction to take immun oncology
1: one step further. Yeah, this is, I I remember reading somewhere, somebody said that, you know, there are decades and decades of pathology slides just in storage, and it's staggering to think how much data is on those slides, uh, if we could just, you know, extract that data. So this is fascinating technology. I I appreciate you uh, coming on and, you you know, talking about your career, talking about the work that you're doing with nuclei. So uh, Dr. Ori Zelikoff, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. Great, big thanks to Dr. Ori Zelikoff. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. What do you think is going to be the future of molecular pathology?
2: I don't know what will be in the future, but I can tell you what I would like to see more in the future, which is more uh, next-gen sequencing with inclusion of epigenetics. It would be very interesting to see how um, epigenetics, including you know DNA, RNA methylation, and uh, maybe some small RNA and non-coding RNA, how those can interplay in the field of pathology, and that actually can make impact in uh, you know disease diagnosis. So I think the future, or I would like to see the future, uh, to be a more combinatorial approach. So. Um, Sometimes people will say, uh, oh, this is a technology that will replace traditional pathology. But I think traditional pathology has been around for this many years, It's certainly because it has a lot of value and a lot to offer.
1: You can hear more from Dr. TNU as we talk about molecular pathology and spatial biology in episode 84. This was a really interesting conversation. I love talking about new technologies like this. And I think it's important to note that the central role that pathology has and will continue to have in companion diagnostics and drug development. And I think it's important to become familiar with these new technologies as they become more incorporated into our field. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today, including the Nuclei blog and some articles that have been written recently about the company. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.